did I not see this coming? Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today is a joy for me because I'm bringing back some friends that I've known for a very long time who have been part of my journey. Uh, They're fellow friends and co-bloggers of mine who have been with me back when this podcast was the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast, and if you followed the entire series, you've heard the music where we... (laughs) It's Feminist Mormon Housewives. Um... So Nancy Ross and Sarah Hanks, can you say hello? Hi. Hi. Good to be here. So it's so hard. Let's start with you, Sarah, because I, I call you Skish. So it's like our nickname Please do. for you. That's fine. Well, and where that nickname came from is there were other like six other Sarahs we were co-blogging with or something. <laughs> I can't remember. Yeah, so, there were just so many Sarahs. So we call you Skish. So it's hard for me to not use that name. So uh, Skish, why don't you tell us who you are and about yourself? Sure. Yeah, my name is Sarah Hanks. And uh, gosh, where to start? I was born and raised Mormon. I grew up in the St. George area, if anybody is familiar with Washington County. Grew up there and definitely did the whole, you know, Mormon timeline, Uh, went to college, got married in the temple to a return missionary. And that was sort of um, a turning point for me that the, the temple kind of introduced me or funneled me into the Mormon feminist community because that was just like a difficult thing to deal with. And how long Since have we then, known each I other? Have... How long have we known oh. each other? Like 10 years, maybe? I mean, I, I know I first met you five years ago in person. You know, even before that, at like a snacker or something. So yeah, I mean, it's been like at least seven or eight years. Internet years are really long. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> really are. Like, even if I've known most of you for five or six years, like that's like a decade in internet time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so that was how I met Lindsay and eventually how I met Nancy was through internet family. Um, I am a, a writer and an, ed- an editorial assistant um, and a mother of two little kids. I live in Layton, Utah now. And I began blogging for Feminist Mormon Housewives in 2013 up through 2016. And that should that should about cover it for now. I think that's good. <laughs> okay. And how about you, Nancy? I was born into the church and uh, raised LDS. Um, I grew up in Maine, which is a little different than, you know, not, not here in the West. And... And I am an academic. So I live here in St. George, Utah, and I'm and I'm a, an art historian by training. But a few years ago, about five years ago, I started writing about Mormon feminists. And I haven't really stopped writing about Mormon feminists. So And you just don't you don't just of, write about them. You're collecting data and yeah. No. Yeah. So I, I research Mormon feminists. And so I've done a number of surveys. I've done interviews. I've written uh, and journal articles. And and I'm working on a longer term project of uh, history and sociology of Mormon feminism. So, Okay, cool. And before we get into the topic of talking about LDS women and sort of their interactions with polygamy, especially online. Let's talk about what you guys have been working on because because that really ties into what we're talking about today. You guys have put together a book. So let's talk about the book. Yeah, the book um, was just released last month in May, and it's entitled Where We Must Stand, 10 Years of Feminist Mormon Housewives. For those who aren't familiar, Feminist Mormon Housewives um, was, you know, kind of the the starting ground of this podcast, but it's a blog that was founded in 2004 and became kind of a central hub for a lot of Mormon feminists um, who were just beginning to connect on the internet. And um, so the book covers the first 10 years of that blog August 2004 to August 2014 pulls out um, posts that were kind of reflective of the of the blog as a whole and that would kind of tell a cohesive story of the journey that Mormon feminists went on during that time period. Um, Nancy and I co-edited the book and contributed additional information that's not on the blog and also collected essays, kind of reflective essays from from other folks in the community as well, so that it's not purely 
it's not purely material that was already published online. It's also brand new stuff. And um, we've just been really excited to finally have it out there and to to have people read it and respond to it. We're we're really happy with it. Yeah. And I'm hoping let's talk about Feminist Born Housewives for a minute, because now that the podcast is called Year of Polygamy, I want to talk about how it started out because one of the things that gives me some anxiety sometimes is looking back and thinking of old episodes. It's got different music. It's got a different tagline. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I think I want to just go clean it up and make it all the same. But it really does represent an important history. And that's Feminist Mormon Housewives. So why don't we talk about you kind of covered it a little bit, but let's talk about what Feminist Mormon Housewives was or is, who started it, how we all got involved. Sure. So Feminist Mormon Housewives blog was founded by Lisa Butterworth in August of 2004. And when she founded the blog, she has said since then that she felt that she was maybe the only Mormon feminist that existed um, in the world. And and I think soon after she found out found, found the blog, she discovered that she wasn't the only Mormon feminist that existed. Um, but she had been reading um, some Times and Seasons and some other Mormon blogs and observed that women's voices weren't well represented. Um, and so she decided that she there needed to be a new blog that featured those sorts of things. So as time goes on, uh, Lisa ropes in a number of new bloggers, and bloggers have been cycling in and out of Feminist Mormon Housewives blog really since then. Um, often people kind of come into the community, participate for a little while, blog, become involved, and then they may move on um, what and that what moving on can mean different things to different people. Yep. That's right. There's, there's definitely been um, kind of a sense of like mounting energy over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole, the whole stated purpose of feminist Mormon housewives as it started was it set out to be a safe place to be feminist and faithful. The idea being that, you know, it might be hard to go to church and express your feminist side. And it might be hard to go into a secular feminist space and express your belief in the church, um, the fact that you're a religious person. And so this was supposed to be a place where people could really have both of those things and at least try to reach some sort of harmony or balance between them. And that was a difficult goal, especially, you know, at times when the church um, would would do things that that were very offensive to a feminist person, or especially as people discovered things about church history that, that were difficult for them, whatever the case may be, it was, it wasn't always achieved, but that was at least the hope. And I didn't always identify as a, I mean, sorry, I always did identify as a feminist, but I don't think I even really knew what that was because when I found the blog, my experience was I had just learned about Joseph Smith's plural wife's Mm-hmm. Doing the research on my own, felt completely alone, didn't understand like the blogger knuckle or that there was anything out there. And I think it was Teresa Edmonds had had gone on a radio show in Utah when they it was like their first year into the blog. And I heard her talking about polygamy and I I was like camping and we had just by chance driven down the mountain to go get some supplies and that came on and I actually made my husband stop the car. <laughs> So I could listen to the rest of the broadcast because I'm like, wait, someone else is talking. What? I'm not alone. And so I went to the blog as soon as we got home camping and I started commenting. And I really credit Feminist Mormon Housewives, which we call FMH, for helping me find my place in Mormonism. Because up until that point, I, I had this like, I don't know, rage and fear sort of boiling up inside. Because nobody in my life would let me talk about these things. And so I come to a feminist Mormon housewives and they're like, oh, yeah, no, we can talk about that all you want. Yeah. And, it, and it was oh, so completely. refreshing. And there, there's so many people who express that same thing that like I felt so alone. I didn't have anybody to talk to about this stuff. And then feminist Mormon housewives or some other community that's a lot like it just is is like their lifeline to start to feel like they're not they're not crazy for having issues they're not crazy for wanting to be able to talk this stuff through with somebody and, and that's been a big theme of research on Mormon feminists is that there are a lot of people who felt very isolated and they knew that uh, talking about like women's issues in the church was just inherently dangerous 
and 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 came with a big social cost. And so, I mean, this is just a huge theme of the community, which is, you know, I was once really isolated, and then I found feminist Mormon housewives, and that joined me into a larger Mormon feminist community, and I don't feel alone anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's that's the experience that most of us had. And at the time, this is so funny, too. I never saw the word feminist as a bad thing. I mean, I'd grown up in a very faithful household. My mom said she raised feminist daughters. I never, growing up in church, heard it talked down on. I And maybe it was. I just never did. So I never saw it come in conflict with my faith until I started blogging. And then, you know, all of these other fellow Mormons come out of the woodwork and tell us, Every day, a hundred reasons why we can't be Mormon. So my story with this is a little bit different. Um, I am a second generation Mormon feminist. My mother worked on the Exponent um, in Boston when I was a kid. And so I grew up being a little bit aware that there was something going on. um, And but not really having any understanding of the details of the Mormon feminist community. And I remember like in September of 93, I turned 13 and I remember my parents like whispering about stuff and my mom subscribed to Sunstone and, you know, also to the exponent. And I remember kind of pointing to a stack of like Sunstone magazines and I was like, what are those? And I was allowed to read and did read everything in the house. And she was like, you are never allowed to read those. So I had the sense that there was something else in Mormonism that was out there, but that it was also like deeply forbidden. <laughs> so. My, um, you know, I, I I kind of understood this tension growing up, but without necessarily having had a con a, a lot of conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's the experience of a lot of people, and I and it is still this way in the Mormon community where people feel like they can't talk about things. But I remember ten years ago when I was blogging, first started blogging. I mean, we all had pseudonyms. We. We were scared about getting excommunicated, but I never thought people would read it. Like, I thought there were, like, you know, 50 people in the little blogging community. And that was a mistake because I was blogging about my personal life, about my family, and then my family would find out and be like, what the heck? Why are you talking about us? So that's kind of the attitude is that we really did feel like it was this kind of, like, secret little club, or at least I did. Uh I, I think as a reader, it felt like a secret little club. And I, I didn't, I, I was probably a blog reader for years before I ever made a first comment. And that's what it felt like. I felt like even using a pseudonym was, you know, too risky and I needed to kind of avoid becoming too publicly involved. It, that didn't work out in the long term. Well, and that's what I, you know, we're going to talk about polygamy and our reactions to it and the community that we've dealt with with Mormon women, but I think it's so relevant. So I know I already made you talk about the book, but let's talk about some of the stuff that's in there aside from that, because I think it all plays into what we're going to be talking about tonight. Right. Yeah, I am. As I was trying to get ready for this recording and going through the book to find out kind of which posts were going to be most relevant, it just seemed like everything was so tied up together. Like issues with polygamy relate to issues with the temple, relate to issues with priesthood ordination, relate to issues with church hierarchy. Like it's, it's all very interconnected. Um, but basically the book contains that there are about 130, 135 blog posts from those years that really develop a number of different themes that were like really important to FMH and its whole identity. One of them is definitely the idea of motherhood, like where it fits in the Mormon identity, especially if you're a woman. We talked a lot about heavenly mother, polygamy, certainly sisterhood, relief society, bodies, sex. Like there were some themes that kind of just kept popping up again and again for people to discuss um, in new ways. Yeah. And and Sarah is absolutely correct. When when I've looked and tried to trace this theme of polygamy, you know, from the beginning conversations, what, what happened is that Lisa blogged saying, you know, something like, all these people are asking me about polygamy or I'm getting messages about polygamy. And she's like, I don't want to talk about polygamy. Polygamy makes me feel really icky. And I don't want to do that. Um, and then from that particular initial, you know, this, 
that polygamy is a topic that I put on my shelf and I try not to think about it too much. Um, that really evolves into a beginning discussion of polygamy. And then there, they end up, uh, the FMH community end up doing like a on online book club with Mormon Enigma, which is a book about Emma Smith and polygamy is a really big theme um, throughout that book. And then so kind of through that process, the the community comes to terms with what polygamy was and kind of rediscovers a lot of Mormon feminist writing from like the 1990s that was uh, kind of centered around this exploration of what was women's experience in polygamy. And as the FMH blog is doing this, what's happening is that there are other Mormon feminist blogs, specifically the Exponent blog and Zalofahed's Daughters, and they begin to kind of build on these conversations that are really centered on feminist Mormon housewives. And so the conversation within Mormon feminism really begins to build and like ricochet around the community where, you know, it seems like you can't go too many weeks without somebody having a new post on polygamy and having some new thoughts on That's it. So true. There was one post in particular that I reread today. It was about the, the show big love. Um, mm -hmm. and it had, it had just premiered and somebody on, it was Emily Summerhays, who was one of the bloggers at FMH. She wrote a quick little snippet of her thoughts about the, the first, the series premiere. And at the end, she posts a little postscript and she says, and please for, for the love of, for, <laughs> excuse me, please, let's not get into a big polygamy discussion anymore. I think we've had enough of that for the time being. And in that postscript, she hyperlinks to like five or six different posts on FMH, on the other blogs to, to kind of emphasize her point. Like we've talked about this recently. I don't really want to get into that again. Let's just keep this focused on the show anyway. So there definitely was this like evolving conversation, you know, moving from place to place, but people would follow it. People would go from blog to blog and really keep up with what everyone was saying. And I, and I know for me as a reader at this time, I actively avoided all the polygamy posts because when Lisa had, had first expressed, you know, this kind of just makes me feel gross and I don't really want to confront it. I, I I've held on to that particular position for a really long time. And, um, and that's been, you know, kind kind of a troubling thing for me that I have had to to work through. But there's just a lot of resistance. The sense that polygamy for Mormon women is this big can of worms, um, and that it's very it's very difficult to to approach. That wasn't made easier for me. Um, if I could kind of weave in a little bit of my own personal experience. Um, is that when I was started being a heavy reader of the feminist Mormon housewives blog, um, my kids were really little and I, you know, needed some outside connection and reading the blog was one way in which that happened. But in my ward, which is in a rural community outside of St. George, a ward that I lived in for most of a decade, polygamy would periodically come up about once every six months. And unlike other wards that I've been in, I've been on a number of other wards on a couple of different continents. And um, one thing that would happen in this particular ward where I felt kind of very vulnerable is that when somebody would mention polygamy, somebody else would make a comment about how awful polygamy was. And then somebody else would make a comment, well, we understand that this is a celestial principle and we wouldn't want to deny our sisters their place in the celestial kingdom. And the conversation always played out almost exactly like that. And I just began to get this growing sense of worry that even though I hadn't seen heaven as this place, uh, as a place where polygamy is practiced, there were clearly a lot of other women in my ward who did feel that way. And maybe I was wrong. And maybe there began to be this growing feeling like maybe heaven wasn't a place I actually wanted to go to. And so, um, so that's just my own personal story of having to kind of experience and work through this. But I think that that and issues like that and the way that Sarah said, you know, a lot of these issues are kind of bound up together with polygamy, that polygamy becomes this, well, if we actually have to wrestle with polygamy, then we have to wrestle with so many difficult issues for Mormon women. So let's talk about that because now my listeners extend beyond the LDS church. And, yes. and this podcast has totally made me realize that when we say Mormon studies, what we really mean 
is LDS studies. I mean, it's yeah. so predominantly LDS. But at the time, and I would say this is the case for mo- most LDS people still, we see us as the only Mormons in town, you know, like there's there's nothing else. Um, so I want to talk about this to listeners who maybe are from plural families or living in plural marriage right now or from different Mormon communities because we have so many similarities as different Mormon groups, right? And I pointed that out in the podcast, but we also have very different, um, there are some big differences too. And the way that plural marriage is seen and contextualized in each group is different. So for example, FLDS polygamy is radically different than polygamy in say the AUB. There are similarities, but there are some big important differences. And it's the same thing for the LDS. So I want to talk about our feelings, our experiences, and then I want to talk about the LDS struggle. And I've said this on the podcast before, but the main crux of the issue for me and why LDS women in particular hate this doctrine, why it troubles them, why why they want to keep blogging about it and talking about it or avoid it altogether is because we're taught that it's a bad thing, that it was taken from the earth, that it's wicked, but we have to live it in heaven. And our brains don't right. know how to make sense of that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That uncertainty is, yeah, I think that is the heart of the issue because, you know, it's one thing if you're, if you're presented with an idea, like, Hey, this is what you have to look forward to in heaven. And you, and you have to figure out how to grapple with that. But when there's so much uncertainty around it, when people are saying, well, maybe you have to practice it in heaven and you should definitely be willing to do that, but maybe you won't. And, and it's fine. You don't need to worry about it. When those are the two messages like simultaneously don't worry about it. It's not, it doesn't apply to you, but then also maybe worry about it. Maybe it does apply to you. You don't know, you know, you don't know where to focus your attention. You don't know what is going to be asked of you. And so you don't really know how to prepare for it. Yeah. That's a, such a great way to to phrase it. Yeah. And Nancy, maybe do you want to talk if, if you're comfortable getting into why polygamy was so hard for you to tackle or to look at as an LDS woman? Yes. So I think that for me personally, again, I'm just speaking from my own point of view. I think that polygamy was tricky because, well, for, for a number of reasons. And I think some, I had probably some stereotypes that I didn't realize in my head about what polygamy would mean. And that's certainly part of this, but I think for me, it was also a sense of like, well, who is heavenly mother and is she a polygamous wife? Is she one of many heavenly mothers or is she like the one mother? And with the idea that if I knew more about her situation, then I would have a sense of what my divine role model looked like. But with a with a clear sense that there was one kind of divine role model I was okay with and could aspire to and feel good about with the sense that there were other divine role models that seemed much less certain to me. And, um, and that was tricky. So I think one reason why polygamy seemed very difficult to me was that it seemed like, um, polygamy was okay. So for a bunch of reasons, but polygamy really centered on heterosexuality. Um, right. There were, there, there's like one man and there are all these women and, and there's just so much focus and there seems to be you know, this idea that, you know, polygamy is all about sex. And and I realize that that is a stereotype of polygamy. um, But that was certainly a stereotype of polygamy that I held at that time. Nancy, sorry to interrupt. Can you like explain some of the, like, when we're talking about it as LDS women in Relief Society or amongst ourselves, what are some of the things that we're saying about those? Like when we're talking to each other, what are some of the things we're saying about sex and things like that? So I think that there is a sense of like, like obligation. One of the posts that we have in the book, which is not about polygamy, um, but is kind of a detailed notes of quite possibly the worst sex talk Bishop ever, ever gave. Um, so, and, 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 and there it talks a lot about like a wife's obligation to please her husband sexually. And, and that is a fraught problem for a lot of reasons, but um one of the things that really upset me 
um, about that kind of thinking. Well, and again, that blog post is kind of representative of a vein of thinking in Mormonism, but it seems to emphasize that women are primarily sex objects and baby producers. So it kind of essentializes women's bodies. Like women are for sex, women are for producing and raising children. And that made me deeply uncomfortable at a time in which my children were very small and I was really very depressed and not loving motherhood. So it seemed like polygamy was like that, but amplified. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And I think that that's in line with a lot of people's struggles with the issue. Um, Sarah, what would you say to add your opinion? Yeah, I think the, uh, like Nancy said, the, the way that my understanding of polygamy was tied up with my understanding of sex, like those were, were very much, um, woven together. I, you know, through, through growing up, who knows how you absorb different ideas, but I definitely absorbed the idea as I was growing up that, women didn't really like sex and men really, really did. And so the idea being that, oh, men want to have sex all the time. Women don't really want to have sex at all. So it makes sense that a man would have multiple wives so that each of those wives doesn't have to have sex as often, but the man is still, the man is still getting all the sex that he needs. It was still very much like putting, putting the man's sexual needs at the center. Mm -hmm. And, and so that was, that was difficult. I mean, because I'm also at the same time, really, you know, as I'm growing up, I'm a really hopeless romantic. And I want to have this very special relationship with my husband someday. And so the thought that that could possibly be divided into him loving multiple people, and me only loving him and having to see that having to see how his heart wasn't just mine. Like, that was that was very difficult to grapple with as well. But I think the thing, um, the, the idea, how do I say this? The, um, the idea about polygamy that was the most deeply ingrained in me was one of guilt and, and not wanting to be responsible for keeping another woman out of heaven. People talk sometimes um, about how you, um, you wouldn't want to, if, if there's a single woman out there, your best friend, your sister, whoever, somebody who doesn't find a husband in this life, wouldn't it be cruel? Wouldn't it be selfish to not be willing to share your husband with her so that she can enjoy the celestial kingdom someday? I'm not exactly sure where I was taught that idea initially, but it really got into me so that as I got older and was more willing to question things about LDS church teachings I still felt very, very reluctant to question polygamy or to make a firm statement like, I don't believe this is right. I don't want to practice this polygamy in this life or the next. I was very reluctant to say that because in the back of my mind, there was always this idea like sisterhood. Don't you Mm -hmm. care about your sisters? Don't you want them to enjoy the same joy and family togetherness in in the life to come as you do? Like, don't be selfish. That was really what messed me up, where I started to feel like it was wrong of me and like I was somehow, you know, spiritually inferior for not being excited about the possibility of, of, you know, inviting another woman into my marriage, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I think that that's such a good way to say it, because that was the shame that I was carrying around at the time. To mm-hmm. to be in pain and to feel selfish about your pain, uh, mm. especially when it's a legitimate concern, right? Like, why why can't women feel jealous? Why can't women feel possessive of their husbands? Why can't they feel like they should deserve, you know, the, the romantic attention of one person, especially in our society, which really, I mean, I grew up watching Disney movies, right? Which of there's course, tons yeah. of problems there, but... You never see Aladdin and his six wives. You know what I mean? And Uh so there's just no context for us to even make sense of it. And then to have that added shame, like, well, you're being selfish for being concerned about it. It's really hard to grapple with. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and so often to any pain that you do have about it is just so easily dismissed. Um, Mm -hmm. Because again, going back to that, um, that 
contradictory message that you get within LDS tradition where on one hand, maybe you won't ever have to practice polygamy. And so you don't need to give it any thought, but on the other hand, maybe you will, and you'll definitely encounter people in wards or in seminary classes or, or, you know, in your friend groups or family, you'll encounter people who hold both of, who hold one or the other of those opinions. And so you can be taught very different things as far as whether this is something that you have to look forward to in the celestial kingdom or not. And so, I mean, there, there's just no, there's no like solid ground to stand on when it comes to polygamy, if you're an LDS woman, because nothing at least in my experience, nothing is settled. Nothing is really secure. And because of that, I just kind of want to jump in there on your thought there, Sarah, because of that sense that nothing is settled, it also seemed very much to me like, even though agency and free agency are important ideas within Mormonism, that when it came to things like the situation of families in the afterlife, like in the celestial kingdom, I wouldn't actually have a choice. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like this was like a real and very specific way, at least in the minds of the other women in my ward, like they believe that truly I wouldn't actually have a choice. Like it wasn't really a thing that I could freely choose or not choose. And so if it made me really uncomfortable, I could just not choose it. It seemed like there was so much obligation here that there was actually no choice. And that, that felt, I don't know. I mean, like panicky (laughs) that that felt like a really bad idea for me yeah so I'm curious Nancy my approach with this podcast and with the blog was well we just need to talk about it and sort of exercise these demons from our system but you and I I have to say like many women like there are women that I've known for the entire time that I've been in the blogger knuckle that are friends of mine and follow my work but they've never listened to a podcast because they can't confront mm-hmm. it so where like where does that come from i you know like i think for me i think it comes from like fear of loss of choices and in a sense there i think this is really where the house can come down like the whole thing can come down which is it if you have sacrificed so much in your life and you know I was a good Mormon girl I think we all were right and that's that's part of where the issue comes like if you've sacrificed so much to kind of maintain worthiness for an afterlife and you're aware of that degree of sacrifice then you suddenly begin to realize that the promise of the afterlife is something that you find deeply upsetting with no choices like that can really bring down a house of or like like the a structure of faith because maybe you decide that you don't like that vision of, of heaven and that you don't actually want to be making all these sacrifices for that particular vision of heaven because it's not good, right? Heaven is always used as a tempting thing. You know, you'll, you'll be blessed in heaven. You'll be blessed in the afterlife. And there are lots of blessings that are kind of thrown around and promised for a very desirable afterlife. But if your idea of an afterlife becomes not only, you know, a little bit uncertain, but then quite upsetting and something you feel like you definitely wouldn't choose and actually you don't really like that idea at all, you know, the whole the whole structure of faith within an individual can begin to crack and that's and and that's part of what I was experiencing. I didn't believe that I could I know that you did believe, Lindsay, that you could kind of talk your way and work your way and study your way into having a a better view of polygamy, I never felt that I could. I felt like that was a hard no for me. (laughs) Like I I didn't think that I'd be able to rehabilitate my my feelings about um, a polygamous afterlife. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally does. And I was going to ask you in the book that you guys compiled, out of curiosity, how many... I know that there were tons of blog posts. Do you guys know how many total were on the subject and how many are included in the book? Hold on. I can. I know that in the book, there are three posts that are explicitly like only about polygamy. There are others that definitely like incorporate it, but those are, those are the ones that are, that have polygamy as their main focus. As far as how many were on the blog overall, I'm sure there were dozens. Um, Nancy might be able to give you a firm number on that since she's the, the research queen. (laughs) 
Sorry, I'm just joking. Yeah, the numbers lady. Um, Let me just open this document and I can tell you how many times polygamy is referenced. Okay, I can't find the number easily, but I'm going to guess that it's referenced at least 50 times. Wow. So so it's it's definitely something that keeps coming up, even if only a few of the posts are specifically and exclusively about um, polygamy. It's just one of these things that after these early discussions about polygamy, after, you know, that early community reads and discusses Mormon Enigma. Um, and then as that, you know, as the, the show Big Love becomes something that is referenced on the blog, polygamy com- becomes part of one of those su- subjects that just keeps reappearing um, in lots of places. If yeah. that makes sense. It's just, it's, it's just becomes a thing that is always kind of present. And I will say too, that I think in the LDS sense for a lot of Mormon women, when they hear feminist, they immediately tie it to this this issue, to polygamy. I know so many people that they see the two as so intertwined. And in fact, you know, so I've, I just did it, re- released a podcast talking about sort of my own journey and how my views on the subject have, have sort of shifted over time. And I still know like some LDS women who are friends of mine who are very upset that I have taken a more compassionate approach to this mm-hmm. because of this reticence. And yeah. again, you know, my principles and my beliefs believe that like if we're going to condemn something, we have to understand it, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I do think that there is so much misunderstanding. That said, I, you know, I'm not an advocate for plural marriage, but I'm certainly not as angry as I was. But I do think that that's a lot of women still conflate feminism and, you know, polygamy as Mormons. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, it over over the course of the time that FMH has existed and as these conversations have evolved, there there really has been um sort of a change in tone and maybe even a change of viewpoint when it comes to polygamy. When you when you read those early posts that were written by Lisa um and other, you know, other people who were in the mix. There does seem to be, first of all, like Nancy's mentioned, um, a reticence to want to talk about it at all. You know, this is uncomfortable. I don't know what to say. I don't want to think about it. That kind of a thing. And there's also sort of an apologetic posture. Um, sort of, you know, statements like, I'm sure I'll understand better in the next life. Um, you know, mm-hmm. this is just me and my limited human brain, whatever. And over time, there does seem to be um, more of a sense that that we can own our stories and we can own our feelings about this stuff. And that that's not to say that that's the, the trajectory that everybody took. I mean, there are definitely individual stories within that larger, within that larger movement, but over time. And I think especially we can see as, as Lindsay, as you start kind of focusing on the forgotten wives of Joseph Smith series. And as we kind of look at our history with the more honest eye, looking at books like in sacred loneliness, there does seem to be more willingness for people to just own their feelings and say, I am not comfortable with this. I am not on board with this sort of arrangement for my marriage now or later. And people are less, um, less hesitant to like claim that position. Mm-hmm. And then there are also a number of people who, who claim the position of, you know what, honestly, I'm comfortable with this. I am okay with this. And and people seem to be a little more bold in just saying where they're at and not really feeling like they have to explain or justify to anybody. And I think one thing that has helped um, me become a little more comfortable with this with this subject of polygamy is that I used to see, you know, I used to see polygamy as something that like happened in the past, but there were there was a legacy and an echo of it in the temple. And therefore it also potentially existed in kind of an afterlife future. But I think that, um, Lindsay, the way in which you have brought in contemporary fundamentalist groups and their practice of polygamy has also helped for me anyway, just ground, um, fundamentalism in the practice of polygamy in the present. And that seems less scary to me if that makes sense, right? Like, because those are actual real people that you can, you know, these, these are people you can talk to and, and they write books and they have experiences and life stories. And that really put a human face or an accessible face on 
um, polygamy instead of, it, it had been kind of the boogeyman for me, right? Like it had been this like really scary thing, but um, engaging in conversations about con- the contemporary practice of polygamy and contemporary polygamous people, that that seems much less scary. Well, and I think, you know, Carolyn Pearson's book, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, is so spot on. And the title is accurate. I mean, it it mm-hmm. so accurately sums up the LDS position with polygamy. If you are fundamentalist and you're still confused at why LDS people hate this practice, you have to read this book to understand. Mm-hmm. And, and I would invite fundamentalists to read that book because... Uh, you know, as I've made an invitation for people to understand your communities, I want you to understand ours because I don't think that we can come to any sort of progress. And maybe that's not your goal, but certainly understanding and compassion is one of my goals. And I think that that's what the blog did. But I, mm-hmm. you know, if you were to look back at some of my earlier posts, I'm sure that they were anti anti polygamy. But I remember mm-hmm. this is a side note, but um. LGBT stuff. I remember that was like too radical at the time to talk about. We had a few of those. And and modesty. I remember talking about modesty, thinking that I'd invented this idea that like maybe modesty is messed up, thinking I came up with it to realize that Mormon feminists have been talking about it forever. People lost their minds when we talked about that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. And you know, it, what you what you were saying about feeling as though you had invented this idea, that's something that like it actually kind of warms my heart or tickles me in some way to and it happens all over the place on the blog with all kinds of subjects. People in the comment section or maybe in a guest post kind of sharing this big idea that, as you mentioned, like has been established by other Mormon feminists who came before. You see it all the time in posts about polygamy. There will always be some random commenter saying, hey, you know, we don't talk about Heavenly Mother very much. Do you think it's because there are Heavenly Mothers? And it's like, <laughs> it's like, and it just shifts for them. But but the, even though it can be, you know, there can be a sense of like, oh, come on, get get with it, like catch up. It is sort of encouraging to see how people are willing to think through these things and even come to like the same conclusions independently. It sort of it makes you feel like like there there's there's some meat here to whatever the issue is. There's there's something undergirding it if so many people could come to the same conclusion or have the same frustrations independent of each other. I don't know. That's just something that I love about how the the life cycle of the blog and how people come in and out. And there's always new people like discovering old conversations and renewing them. Can we talk about when um, the blog became, well, when Facebook got involved and so how that sort of shifted the conversation? Yes. So Facebook changed the way that it did groups and it improved them in 2010 and 2011. And so I believe it's near the end of 2011 where, um, Lindsay, it's you who created the FMH Facebook group or Lisa? I can't remember who officially created it. I was there when we started it. Yeah. So one, one of you is like the first name that is listed. So, so the, so you previously the conversations had all been on the blog and the blog comments and a lot of the bloggers are using pseudonyms to kind of shield themselves from family and church repercussions, but also commenters are also using pseudonyms to do the same thing, right? They want to have, people wanted to have these conversations, but they wanted to be protected in having these conversations. But what happens is that when the Feminist Mormon Housewives Society Facebook Uh, group is created, suddenly we have lots of people who are readers and bloggers and members of the community um, getting to know each other and and everyone else's real name. And we're able to have these more open conversations in a semi-shielded space in Facebook. And that led to a lot of further conversation um, about, and, and also the kind of growth of growth of the community, um, because it wasn't just a few. Well, when when the Facebook group was created and started to become very large, um, what happened is that literally the conversation shifted from the blog to the Facebook group. And there's a post somewhere at like the beginning of 2013, I think, saying, you know, still comment on the blog. We miss our conver- we miss our public conversations. Um, but so the growth of this particular Facebook 
group really changed the nature of the conversation. And it also quickly led to people beginning to tease through ideas of activism, where we'd had um, posts talking about potential activism on the blog, particularly by Nat Kelly. Um, suddenly, with the advent of the Facebook group, we've got actual people talking to each other with their real names, and then also then wanting to do something about making uh, the spaces of the LDS church safer for Mormon women. Yeah, and I remember that shift, and it happened slowly. It was On the one hand, it was exciting, but it really was hard as bloggers who we were used to one format, and mm-hmm. then there was this new format, and we didn't quite know how to do it. But I think that's around the time when I started blogging about the wives of Joseph Smith. And that's important to this history, Mm -hmm. too, because I had sort of worked out some of my angst. I thought that I knew a lot about polygamy. And really, all I had done is read Todd Compton's book in Sacred Loneliness and a few other, you know, pieces of historical documents about it. And I really didn't know much, but I decided I was going to highlight on the blog the the lives of Mm -hmm. the wives. And that's where I started. And what's funny is people will complain on this podcast that my first episodes don't have footnotes linked to them because I link to all my sources and my footnotes. And that's because the early episodes of the podcast were me reading from my blog posts, which have all the footnotes, right? Mm -hmm. So that's it really is what started this podcast. That's Mm -hmm. what we credit it. To starting this podcast. Right. And and I loved going back um, again in preparation for this recording. I went back and read as many of the posts on the blog about polygamy as I could. And what's so great about a blog as opposed to a Facebook group or a podcast is the comments mm-hmm. are right there and they're there for posterity as long as the internet exists. And so you can go back to those blog posts that were, you know, the the, the grounding of this of this podcast and you can see people's comments and you can see people responding to Lindsay's earliest post about you know Helen Mark Kimball and and mm-hmm. how people were surprised at, to learn things or how people were frustrated with Lindsay for her approach like you can see it so clearly in black and white and and you can kind of look back on that as like a comparison to people's responses now as well and and so yeah that I think that's to me, that's the heartbreak of the Facebook group as much as I love it and as much as I use it, as much as it has given me over the years, is that you don't, you, you, we could never make a book about the second 10 years of Feminist Mormon Housewives on the Facebook group because you cannot go back and find all of this information. It's just yeah. too much. It's too cluttered. It's too difficult to like manage but on the blog, it's all there. And it's, and it's just this little time capsule that like, I love that. I don't know, that's just something that's, I think that's the big legacy to me of the Facebook group transition is how it changed um, our history, like how it changed the way we will be able to look back on our history. Yeah, the record is, is different. Yeah. I, yeah. I, and I will say, you know, just even having this book, so it's really cool because I'm featured in there several times, some of my blog posts. But you guys, I was a terrible writer. Like, why didn't anyone tell me? <laughs> I really, that's not true. People told me all the time, but. Uh, <laughs> so the thing that was so great, though, is that so so many of these posts are so raw and people are working through their feelings and they're often in really messy places belief-wise and they're trying to kind of reconcile belief and church, church messaging with with like lived experience. And, and that's like the the beauty of it, you know, I mean, you know, we, you know, sure, maybe the quality of the writing isn't, wasn't on the blog, wasn't always awesome, but, but I think that the wrestle was awesome. Like the wrestle with faith and with, you know, potential ideas of an afterlife and the lived religion of being a Mormon woman in that moment as we live our ordinary lives and with all of our unideal circumstances is such a hugely beautiful part. Um, part of part of the blog, part of the book that I think more than makes up for, you know, writing where people are still learning. Yeah. yeah. I think the the lack of polish is really I I love it. And and I love it about your posts, Lindsay. And I love it about Lisa's posts. And I mean, every post was just like full of of misspelled words and stuff, but it was so it was also so full of heart. 
which I know is like cheesy, but like this was a place where people were laying their souls bare to strangers on the internet who became their families in a sense. And so that like, I think that that comes through. I hope it comes through even to people who aren't familiar with the blog. I hope just that like vulnerability shines through. I don't, I don't know how it could possibly um, not. And here's the thing why, you know, I can joke about it, but I'm, I'm actually not embarrassed by it. I've had critics who usually it's a generational um, critique as well, but they're upset like at the lack of formality that I use that, you know, I wrote and had bad grammar, poor, poor grammar, I still do, and Mm -hmm. um, bad spelling. But I was and still am a Mormon woman, a Mormon mother, and I was blogging about my experiences and that that was real and it was authentic. And I think the reason why this blog became so wildly popular, probably the most read blog in the blogger knuckle, was because we weren't trying to be an academic journal. We weren't trying to speak to a certain elite crowd of educated people. We were talking to other people like us, everyday chapel Mormons, women around the world. I mean, we can talk about that because at first it was very sort of Utah-centric. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, that's the appeal is that we didn't need to polish our writing. That's not what we were there for. We didn't want someone to say, oh, you're such a great writer. You're such a great scholar. We were talking about our experiences. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and I, I think, you know, I think the informality of it was really important. I mean, social media is an informal medium and that makes it accessible to a very wide audience and i think that you're right it was a huge part of the success of fmh and the very large readership of mmh fmh because because it was so accessible so yeah. i just mentioned this but let's talk about the shift that we went through to become more intersectional and you covered this in the book too yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's a, I mean, that's an ongoing story for sure. Um, Nancy, do you want to, I think this is something that you cover really well in your introduction. Do you want to speak to this? Yeah. So at about the time um, that Kate Kelly was excommunicated, which was in June of 2014. So it was later that summer that the, um, the community largely in the space of the Facebook group started to wrestle with the aftermath of um, shootings of, of black men in America and um, the events in Ferguson and a number of other incidents that followed where police were not held accountable. The Mormon feminist community is a very white community. Um, and as I've looked at other readers' surveys from the exponent from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it has always been a very white community. And we haven't until fairly recently um, as a, as a group tried to acknowledge that whiteness and, and really wrestle with that. You know, I remember in 2014, 2015, as the FMH community and the spaces of the Facebook group began to wrestle and do so very badly with a number of race conversations, um, really begin to, you know, my, my, my sense of the Mormon feminist community at, at that time was like, this is my warm, fuzzy, safe, happy space. Mm-hmm. And I began to realize that this was not a warm, fuzzy, safe, happy space for everyone in, in, in that in the in that group and in other Mormon feminist groups. And that was a huge shift in thinking for me. Um, and since that time as a community, we've really been wrestling with how do we how do we include more voices? How does Mormon feminism uh, wrestle with its whiteness and become more inclusive? How do we listen, do a better job of listening and claiming as our sisters, which is such a huge theme of the movement, um, women of color um, and and women at other points of intersection, um, like LGBT women and specifically trans women within that. And, um, you know, and, and women with disabilities and and women um, who who maybe have autism and, and, and a lot of different kinds of intersection. Um, and this is something this is something that has been been a huge challenge. It remains a huge challenge. Um, and within FMH in the last year, the tagline has gone from being feminist and faithful 
which is a tagline that we follow throughout that that was connected to feminist Mormon housewives blog throughout throughout the book. But recently the tagline has changed to something like spreading the radically inclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. And um and it turns out that's a super difficult mission to fulfill. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, because there are just lots of ways in which we as a largely white community continually end up centering whiteness and cisgenderedness and able-bodiedness um, and not doing a great job of specifically claiming women of color as our sisters and then um, creating spaces where they become fully-fledged participants in in our community where white women listen to women of color. Right. And... If, if I could, um, something that's been on my mind a lot is one point of intersection that I think has to do a lot with polygamy and the way that LDS women talk, talk about it. And that's the issue of what we often call it in, at least in the FMH circle, is married privilege. Um, there are so many conversations, so many comments on these old blog posts that I catalog today where the jokes that are made about how the jokes that are made to, to cope with our discomfort around polygamy often really minimize and, and yeah, minimize the experiences of single women. And I think the, the approach and the viewpoints that LDS women have about polygamy can be very different depending on whether you're a married woman who is considering the possibility of having to quote, share your husband Versus if you're a single woman who maybe is, you know, orthodox and believing or maybe not, but looking at it from a different, a very different point of view about the possibility of, of joining a marriage someday, joining a family as a second or a third or, you know, a mm-hmm. down the line wife. And, and there are so many comments and jokes that are made about, um, you know, as long as she's ugly, as long as she cleans the toilets, as mm-hmm. long as she, you know... Uh, basically an indentured servant or something there. And it, it's interesting how that is the coping mechanism, but it does, it's a point of intersection that I, I personally, as a married LDS woman, I didn't even see it at all until it was pointed out to me recently by a single Mormon feminist sister said, look at this, look at this as if you were the person who is being talked about as the potential second wife. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, I think there's so many ways in which, um, because, because being a woman in the LDS faith is, um, a secondary position, a second class citizen kind of category in a, in a lot of ways, I think being an LDS woman can kind of, bl- I mean, we're, we're so often blind to our privilege. We can be blinded to the ways in which we are still privileged in comparison to other LES women, because gender is the only lens that we're looking at. But being a woman of color, being a single woman, being a divorced woman, um, you know, all of these categories within the LDS framework really do kind of put you at a disadvantage in a lot of people's minds and, and make you kind of marginal. And I do want to say that's something that I've learned that was surprising to me. There are a lot of derogatory attitudes about women that get related to polygamy in the LDS church. You find that way less so in polygamous communities. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's surprising because they don't look at the second wife as like, you know, the, the woman that would never get married. Now, of course, there is a history of polygamy where, you know, widows have been married or people who couldn't have children. And, and that's a problem. You know, I've heard some horror stories of how women who can't have children are treated in plural communities. And yet I do think it's actually better in communities where women are helping shape the discourse. I don't think that we have that in the LDS church. And just as a side note, this is a funny thing about a lot of plural communities. The second wife is actually the hardest wife to be because you're the first one that's breaking the family into plurality. Mm-hmm. So like you're the other woman in the sense that has to mm-hmm. break it in. And they always say it's best to be the third wife, right? Because the second one has to break everybody in. Yeah. But I think um, those attitudes have translated in the LDS church with our attitudes about how we view women. And this idea that if you are a plural wife, you're not as good, right? Like, or if you're mm-hmm. a single sister, you're not as good. And I, I still think we have that. I think that attitude is is true in the LDS church that that women should be a certain thing. I remember being 
participating in mocking women who went on missions. They were the women that couldn't get married. Right. And that was an acceptable discourse to have in the LDS church. We talked about it and it was a funny joke. Right. And I think that we also, there are also ways because polygamy seems to get in, you know, be connected to so many things. We also forget that, you know, that like LGBT women, you know, that, that polygamy and, and, and a kind of heterosexual framework is, is deeply uncomfortable and doesn't really allow women their own sexuality or space from a non-heterosexual point of view. And, 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 and that's distressing. I think, um, I, am someone who identifies as bisexual and that, and I think that that's one of the ways in which, um, polygamy distressed me is that, you know, it, you know, I'm, I've been married for, to my husband for a long time, but with, and I, that polygamy seems to compound heterosexuality. And that was distressing, you know, like, that, and, and I'm sure it would be much more distressing, you know, for people with like trans identities or who identified as just gay or lesbian. I I interviewed Blair Osler and she actually had an opposite opinion. She found comfort in the idea of plural marriage because for her, it was an opportunity to engage her sexuality because she could be sealed to men and to women. And so, I mean, but that one's so complicated. I agree with you, Nancy. Like Blair's is the ideal. I, I understand her theory, but I also do think that I have heard of plural families, including the FLDS. We know that Warren Jess was experimenting with a theology that allowed women to be with one another sexually. But Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, that is absolutely not allowed. And it's worse so if you're a gay man, right? Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then your problem is really compounded. But I do think that in that sense, plural marriage might appeal to uh, queer women in a way that it doesn't translate to heterosexual women. But clearly, you have stated your um position on it and that's helpful for me too because i kind of just assume like oh maybe you know women who identify differently look at this issue differently well and i think that when i was having all this fear you know including fear and shame around bisexuality you know there, there wasn't really enough flexibility in my thinking to say oh well you know maybe polygamy can be exercised in ways that aren't rigidly heterosexual and I think I actually think that's a fair critique. Um, I like I said, I think that there are opportunities um, mm-hmm. for flexibility, but as it's practiced in the Mormon sense, it's it's pretty much exactly how you categorized it. And and I do, but I do think that like you're speaking to this larger issue, which is how are all the ways that these different doctrines are affecting and impacting people? We we think of ourselves as a monolith, right? Like I like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I thought that. Mormons meant LDS, that they were the same. Mm-hmm. And now uh-huh. I've had to stretch on that. And I still, gosh, I still engage Mormonism from a white Utah Mormon perspective. Like right. my church is so foreign from someone in like Brazil, right? Their church experience is really different than mine. And I think it's just it's just hard to do that. And that's why blogging is important. That's why podcasting is important. And that's why I'm glad you guys have put this book together. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to wrap up talking about this, but I'm hoping that anyone that has followed this podcast and listens to this will buy your book because it really is a history of this podcast, too. And to understand my early positions and my early views, it's all in the book, as long, uh, along with all these other women who are talking about these issues. And I think it, what you guys have done is an incredible amount of work. So um, tell us where to buy the book. Tell us about upcoming ways that we can support you in this project. You can buy the book on Amazon. That's going to be your easiest for sure. Um, You can just look up where we must stand and it should pop right up. And one book from, or excuse me, $1 from every book purchase goes to um, a scholarship fund that Feminist Mormon Housewives has been running since 2013. It's called the Tracy McKay Scholarship Fund, and it it supports single moms reaching their educational goals. Um, so you can buy the book there. And we also have some events coming up where you can buy the book as well if you're in the area. We're going to be in St. George um, at the Barnes and Noble at the Redcliffs Mall. And we're going to be there on June 23rd. Is that right? That's right. Okay. We'll be there from two to five in the afternoon signing books. Um, And then I will be at some events in Phoenix and Mesa 
on um, July 14th and 15th. The details are still in the works on that, but you're welcome to like friend me on Facebook if you want to keep up with that. Or if you're in the Feminist Mormon Housewives Facebook group, there will be a lot of updates there or on the FMH blog. And then we'll also be at Sunstone um, with Lindsay. Um, and we'll be joined there by Lisa Butterworth, who founded the blog, and Kalani Tonga, who's the leading voice on the blog at this point, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. We'll be doing a panel there on Thursday. If you're at Sunstone, we'd love for you to join us. We'll have a book signing right before. So just check your program for that. Okay, thank you. And yeah, is there anything else you want to share with people before I let you go? I mean, just a a very sincere but cheesy thank you for this podcast and for all that you contributed to the Feminist Mormon Housewives blog and family. Um, you know, you your voice was central to to so many things that happened there, and we just we love you and we love that your posts are in the book, and we we appreciate you. Thank yeah, you. I just want to second all of that. Well, and I want to just say thank you to you guys, too, because, first of all, I can't imagine the work that you had to do to comb comb through all those posts and then edit them and then come up with all this, you know, um, context for what was going on. It's a really important history, though, I think, for Mormon women, not just LDS Mormon women, clearly, because what I was able to do is use that as a launch pad to connect with other Mormon groups. And FMH is an absolute critical part of that history. And and I will always be grateful to Lisa Butterworth, who is my internet mother, <laughs> because mm-hmm. she she allowed me that. And um, so this podcast is an effort for me to pay forward all that FMH has given me as well. So if you guys are grateful for this podcast, you can say thank you by buying the book, because that is really what started it all. So... Thank you, ladies, for coming on, and everyone else, have a good night. Thank you. Thank you. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.